From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. When it comes to gauging how risky it is to live where major hurricanes sometimes make landfall, the most important thing to know is what's called the return period. That's the estimated average time between such storms. But because historic records only go back so far, scientists use other ways to determine how frequent major storms have occurred in the past. One such technique is called paleoclimatology, or more specifically in the case of massive storms like Hurricane Ian, paleotempestology. On today's show, we're going to meet one of these scientists who's doing this kind of research work right here in Southwest Florida. Dr. Joe Muller is a paleoclimatologist and a professor in the Department of Marine and Earth Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. She studies past tropical cyclone activity using geological evidence, and by that I mean collecting core samples from lagoons and bays behind Southwest Florida's barrier islands. When a storm like Ian, which brought at least a 15-foot storm surge, makes landfall, it moves large amounts of marine material, think sand and bits of shells and corals, from the gulf side of the island to the relatively calm landward side, and this leaves a layer in the silty muck beneath the water, and those coarse layers persist far into the future. So by collecting core samples from those areas, it is possible to see the layers left by hurricanes that were powerful enough to cause a high enough storm surge to top the island, and this is direct evidence of the return period for major land falling hurricanes along a particular part of the coast. I spoke yesterday with Dr. Muller about her work and why it's important for emergency managers and insurance markets. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Joe Muller is a paleoclimatologist and a professor in the Department of Marine and Earth Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. Dr. Muller, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thanks for having me. So how do you describe your research work and like what you do to a layperson? Like if you were just, you know, if you met somebody out at a cocktail party and they asked what you do, how do you describe that? So there's probably a few different ways I could describe it, but um, mostly we we use the geologic record to reconstruct prehistoric climate change. So, you know, humans have been around for a while now um, taking measurements using thermometers, for example, but those records only really extend back, you know, a little over 100 years or so, uh, depending on where the records are coming from. And certainly for an area like Florida, those records are even shorter. So what we do is we try to look at what happened before that by using the geologic record. And sometimes I might even just tell people that I like to go digging in the mud um, looking for prehistoric hurricanes. So that's another way I could describe it as well. Well, we'll get to how you dig in the mud in a little bit. But um, <laughs> is, is the goal of this kind of research simply to better inform the historic record or to also sort of understand how major storms in history might correlate to broader climate trends in history? Yeah, I think the research does several things. Um, I obviously just find it fascinating understanding what has happened in the past. But I think in the context of, of looking at the future and predicting the future, um, this is one way to look at um, what we call climate cyclicity, for example. The folks are listening may have heard of science behind return periods. You might have heard it in the context of hurricanes or flood or, you know, wildfire or whatever the peril might be. Um, 
But that is is really important in terms of predicting these events in the future, is trying to understand return periods. And so if you only have a record of, let's say in Fort Myers, if you only have a hurricane record that extends back to 1950, then that's a really short time interval um, to look at return periods. And especially if you're trying to look at the return periods of, you know, a major catastrophic hurricane where you may have only had one occur in the last 200 years, it may be missing from that, that human record, what we call the instrumental record. So I think that's probably one of the most valuable pieces of the work that I do because it essentially informs what the what the models say about uh, future events, future climate change. So explain how it is you are able to collect this geologic data. You take cores from the lagoons behind barrier islands. Would that be a simple way to put it? Yeah, that's that's quite perfect, really. Um, it, it doesn't. There's there's other records too. I mean, there's um, and we'll we'll be doing a little bit more of this actually in the spring. So you can also core. Uh, offshore blue holes so they're like sinkholes that exist off the coast um, and they are they, they operate in the same sort of way so when you have a hurricane that moves through it has a lot of energy especially it creates a lot of energy in the water column and um, especially if there's you know significant storm surge associated with it so if you have a blue hole that's offshore it pushes a bunch of marine material into that blue hole and that drops to the bottom of the, the blue hole and gets deposited through time. If it's a lagoon that's actually on the, the landward side, then the storm surge overwashes the actual barrier island and it deposits that marine sediment back behind the actual barrier island itself in the lagoon. It could also be a bay. Um, it could be a marsh. So we have a couple of marshes on Sanibel Island, for example, that we've caught in. As long as it's like a low energy environment where you wouldn't usually see that material unless it were kind of a really high energy event like a hurricane. How long has this field or this technique been around? Well, actually, interestingly, it's a relatively new type of science. Um, so some of the earliest work was done by Camby Lou up at Louisiana State. Um, and he's really been, it's, he sort of started this work, I think, in the 1980s. And so it's progressively gotten more popular. Um, there are a few different groups now doing the work. So, but there's still a lot to be understood because ultimately what would be fantastic is for us to have these really great prehistoric hurricane records all along the U.S. Um, coastline and obviously for other countries as well. Um, so that these long-term uh, return periods can be calculated. But it's a significant amount of work to go and take a bunch of cores and then essentially sample the cores and do all the, the work on the cores to, to, to do the reconstruction. So um, it's a slow, it's not a quick sort of science. It's it, You can't just go run an experiment in the lab and have results the next day, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, describe how you collect the cores, you know, and, and the, the, the nature of them. You know, like how, how, what's their diameter? How deep do they go? You know, how do you collect them and what do they look like? So there are actually quite a few different coring techniques that can be used. Um, so we, in those back burial lagoons, generally the easiest way to get into them is just by actually hand coring so we use a hand coring technique where we use 
really long aluminium pipes um, and we drive them down into the lagoon and then we pull them back out. Um, that's if the water is like shallow enough to get the core down and to take the sample. But if we're going to core an offshore blue hole, then you need a boat because uh, usually the water is quite deep. Sometimes you can have scuba divers go down into the blue hole if the blue hole itself isn't too deep and hand core down there. But generally it's best to do it actually from a boat, from a ship where you might drop a coring device into the blue hole. So there are a bunch of different ways that the science can be done, the field work can be done, um, but we mostly use hand coring techniques. So we're actually, myself, my students are actually in the water and we're actually in there with sharks and <laughs> potentially alligators um, and whatever else is in the water. Uh, so... And how deep do you core? Um, it really depends on the, the age of the lagoon. So you can only go back in time as far as the lagoon is old. So if the lagoon is only 200 years old, you can only core to the bottom of the lagoon. So you have 200 years of, of sediment. Um, and it really depends on the, the depositional rate, but that could be anywhere between, you know, half a meter to, to two meters of sediment. Um, with the hand coring technique, you can't really go that deep. So generally, if we're hand coring, we may only be going two and a half meters, three meters in depth. Um, you can imagine what a big core barrel with three meters of sediment is like trying to like get it out of the ground and holding it up. Um, it's quite heavy. And so if we really if we if we find a really deep um, or if we find a really long record, usually we're coring from a ship or a boat so that we can extract it much more easily. Yeah. Um, how evident are the layers that represent these storm events in the core? Like, are they visible to the human eye? Yes. Um, in most cases, they will be. They'll actually be really obvious, um, especially if you're coring in a back row or a lagoon. For those of you that have gone canoeing or kayaking or been in fishing in some of these back barrier lagoons, generally the, the sediment's really dark. It's full of organics. Um, it's also... It's really, it's really fine grained, um, and it, it always has that sort of smell to it, um, which always gets me excited because I know it's going to be a good area to core in when I when I can smell that. If I can't smell it, then um, usually that means the background sediment's not going to be good for paleotempestology. Um, but yeah, the, those those marine sediments will look completely different. So they'll look just like the sand that you would see at the beach. Um, and they differ a little bit um, geographically. So you may have like a lot of shell material, broken up shells, um, or you may just have like a really quartz rich sand. It may look just like a really sandy beach. Um, but yeah, it will look, the layers will look at completely different color and grain size to that background kind of stinky lagoonal sediment. Does the thickness of the layer correlate to the severity of the storm event? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, that that would be a, a really good interpretation, wouldn't it? But um, what one of the things about paleotempestology is, as you go back further in time, you have to make some assumptions. And um, you know, if you're going to be comparing layers like that to one another. Um, let's say that you had a storm in, let's say you have Hurricane Donna making landfall in 1960. And so you see that, you you radiometrically date your core and you see that layer in the top of your core and you say, okay, I know that's Hurricane Donna and this layer is very thick. 
Um, if you see then a similar layer down core, let's say there's another layer 100 years before that, you could say, okay, well, that must have been a Cat 5 or Cat 4 2, or maybe that was a storm that had the same sort of storm surge as Hurricane Donna. But the problem with that is you're assuming that the actual barrier island itself was the same um, back at that time period. And so obviously some barrier islands are really tall. Um, some are very low-lying in the context of sea level. Um, and so some are much easier to overwash. This is this process where you move this, this sediment back into the back bay um, with storm surge. And so I try not to compare layers to one another in the core um, just because I think it it's a little bit problematic because you really are making assumptions. Now, in saying all of that, most of the research that's been done in Florida on by the, the, the folks that really study um, the geomorphology of the coastline, so and that by that I mean like shape of it and how tall the barrier is and what it's doing through time, whether it's eroding, um, most of that research tells us that the coastline has been stepping back you know, for the last hundred years or so, and most of the coastline is erosive. And so you could potentially make an assumption that the barrier is as high as it is today, if not higher in the past. Um, but still, you can't say that with certainty. So I do try to be careful of that. How do you determine the age of the layer other than relative to other layers that you know, like the Donna layer, you kind of know that's the Donna layer, but are there ways to determine how how old the material is in a layer that's deeper? Yeah, absolutely. So we use radiometric um, dating techniques, so isotopes um, that decay. I'm sure the folks out there that are listening have probably heard about radiocarbon dating, um, so we generally use radiocarbon dating in the lower sections of the core. Um, so we'll actually take samples um, throughout the core and we'll send them off to a facility. Radiocarbon dating has to be done on an accelerated mass spectrometer. It's a massive instrument. Um, there are not that many in the U.S. actually. So we send ours up to Woods Hole, um, which is where I spent my postdoc. So it's a great lab. So we send them up there. Um, to run them for radiocarbon. And then radiocarbon can't be used in the very top of the core because its half-life life is a little bit too long to get accurate dating in the very top. So we use a short-lived isotope. Um, generally, we'll use lead-210 or cesium-137, and that gives us really nice decay curves in the top of the core. So it allows us to actually date the top accurately and then we'll use a radiocarbon in the deeper layers and we construct something that we call an age model from the very top of the core so present day all the way down to however old our core is so we have a we have a study site in naples for example that goes back to um, it's older than a thousand years so we have this really nice age model and so then once we have the age model we can determine the age of all of those events uh, and then sort of start to calculate return periods for hurricanes. 
I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest. Dr. Joe Muller is a paleoclimatologist and a professor in the Department of Marine and Earth Sciences at FGCU. She studies past tropical cyclone activity using geological evidence and historical documents and has collected core samples along the southwest Florida coast that show when major storm surge events have hit this area over the past thousand years. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic or any of our episodes, just use WGCU social media. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. So Hurricane Dada in 1960 was the last storm that brought a serious storm surge like what we just saw. Um, as I understand it, it was around 12 feet. And as I understand it, uh, Ian, uh, it was as high as 15 feet, at least on Fort Myers Beach. Um, does that mean there's a new layer out there um, that future paleoclimatologists will be able to find? Yeah, there is actually. So um, before jumping on a plane to, to London, I actually... I, I went out coring the day before um, on Sanibel Island uh, with my grad students. And so uh, we had special out there and we're actually working on an NSF project now um, for Hurricane Ian. And so, yeah, I actually, I actually have pictures of it. I have Ian's, um, we call it a tempestite, the actual hurricane layer itself. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so it's definitely out there, and it's going to be really interesting. We have uh, this in this project. We'll be recoring, I think, six or seven of our field sites. In 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 all of our cores, we generally see Hurricane Donna in the very top of the record. Presumably, uh, maybe there's this. This applies to Donna to a lesser degree, but a deep history core wouldn't have any evidence of human activity in its meaning like maybe lead or something like that but does donna have different stuff the donna uh, layer have different stuff in it than the deep layers and then presumably the ian layer will have even more of that if that makes sense so it's 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 an interesting question and i believe that there are some groups looking at um i think I think that there's some groups that have been have looked at things like mercury, and I actually we have a we have a scientist at FGCU, Darren Rumbold, that um, is going to take some of my hurricane layers and look at some of the the geochemistry and the makeup of the actual tempestite itself. I don't specifically do that, um, but I know that there are groups out there that do that. We also have a um, we have an, a scientist at FGCU as well in my department. Both of these. Uh, scientists are in my department, um, Puspa Adhikari, and he actually looks at red tide brevitoxin signatures. So they'll both be looking at those storm layers to see what else is in there. Um, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. But my my sort of science is mostly just looking at the hurricane events and trying to look at them deep within the record. Um, I think one one thing that's really fascinating about our area and I've been talking about this um, ever since I've been doing the work down here in Southwest Florida, is that it was a really active uh, coastline, hurricane coastline, uh, before Hurricane Donna. So between 1873 and 1960, I see five tempestites. Um, and when you look at the historic, because there's, there's historic records of these events of like people taking high water marks on their houses, uh, there were kind of bases along the coastline that have recorded storm surge. And so um, all of those storms that occurred uh, between 1873 and 
Hurricane Donna in 1960, they were all greater than 10 feet of storm surge. And so, you know, when I would give uh, public presentations and I'd be talking to the community, I think folks, anyone that kind of moved to Southwest Florida after Hurricane Donna, which is most of us, a storm surge greater than 10 feet just seemed so crazy to them. But um, it's actually something that has happened and it's happened quite often in Southwest Florida. And, you know, during these talks, I would always say that uh, we just happen to to get lucky with hurricanes like Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Charlie. And and then Ian has come along and, and this this sort of storm is not... You know, it's a rare event, but it's not that rare um, in the context of the history that we've seen over the last couple hundred years in Southwest Florida. Yeah, I grew up here, so I was starting to think maybe we were somehow protected geographically. But since Ian, I've learned that, you know, firsthand that's not true, and I've been learning the history, so I clearly know that's not true. Um, What's it like for you to be somebody who works on this kind of research to be you know, living in currently from the place that's gotten what's going to turn out to be maybe the second most damaging hurricane to the United States in its history. Yeah, I have to I have to admit it was really surreal because um, the hurricane actually made landfall as I was at a hurricane conference in um, in Zurich. Uh, it was a, a catastrophe modeling uh, conference, which you know most of the folks in the room were hurricane scientists. And so we were actually in sessions that afternoon, but you could, I kind of looked around the room and everyone was just looking at their phones and their tablets at this massive storm making landfall. And, and then we'd go out for the coffee break and everyone's talking about Hurricane Ian and just essentially how bad it looked. And it was such a surreal feeling because, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, that's where I live and that's where all my friends are and my dog and my house and all these things. And um, I just felt obviously there was a little bit of guilt there, you know, obviously not being in in Fort Myers, which probably sounds a bit silly, but I, I think a lot of people have that feeling for those that were not as affected by the storm. Um, but I think it also just kind of renewed this um it, it, it showed me and my students the importance really of the work that we do and really trying to understand as well as we can these particular types of storms. What's on the cutting edge of this kind of research? Is like there's something that's coming or new tools or techniques that you're looking at that might help, you know, give you better understanding of what's going on or, or is that not necessarily the case? No, I, I really think that there's a lot going on in the field right now, which is really exciting. Um, there's a couple of groups, uh, Jeff Donnelly's group out of Woods Hole. Um, you know, he he's really prolific in this field. He's done a lot of reconstructions and, you know, he, him and his team at the moment are working on some pretty big things that's going to make the data much more user-friendly as well. And I think one of the main things most of us most of us are doing right now is is trying to make data more usable by um, kind of the folks that that make the predictions um, for for these catastrophic events. Which you know this information essentially is what uh, allow us to forecast return periods, which then allow you know 
for us to calculate more accurately what the risk is in particular geographical areas because it's not the same. Um, for example, you know, the northeast coast of Florida just does not see um, hurricanes make landfall anywhere near as frequently as we see it in south Florida. So, you know, southeast Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, our coastline, um, you know, up around New Orleans. That's a really prominent area for landfall in hurricanes. And so knowing that information and as accurately um, as you can uh, is is really important. That all goes back to emergency planners. Um, so it's 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 important not only for us to figure out like what sort of insurance people need, but also just to to determine what safety procedures should be in place in certain communities, which ones really are so vulnerable um, to these types of storms. All right. Well, that is all the time we have, but I want to thank my guest. Dr. Joe Muller is a paleoclimatologist and professor in the Department of Marine Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. Dr. Muller, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.